This is episode 160 of IDRA Class Notes. Something that we take for granted with children and students is that they are able to interpret everything that they're seeing just because they can see it. But knowing what it means is entirely different, especially in, like, let's say science. You could describe a cell to me all day long, but unless I see a visual, in that seeing it, their their brains are categorizing the information. Our job is to help them organize that information before we can give them new information. and welcome to IDRA's Class Notes podcast. I am Sofia Baena and I'm here with Paula Johnson. Today we will be talking about teaching strategies to help support English language learners in the classroom. We recently just published an article in our newsletter that describes specific strategies around how to support students. And you, you were a high school math teacher. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your experiences were in teaching English language learners? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, this is my 21st year in education, and I spent approximately 13 of those years in a classroom as a math teacher, secondary, always high school. And throughout those years, I had more and more students who were English learners. And I'm about to give away my age. 20-something years ago, (laughs) there weren't a lot of accommodations that could really be made in the math classroom because we were thinking more content specific. So we would try to, you know, translate words and, you know, when we put up diagrams of graphs and things like that, we would use English and Spanish translations. But the thing is, the the more and more time elapsed, we realized that there are several languages being spoken besides Spanish um, among our students. You know, I was in the last district that I worked in, one campus had over 31 languages being spoken, and there's, it's in, impossible mm-hmm. to think that pure translation is going to be the way to, you know, miraculously teach all these kids any subject. Mm-hmm. So we did go through um, the Sheltered Instruction Observation Protocol, or SIOP as it's known, uh, which is a very popular format for scaffolding instruction for English learners, where the teacher doesn't necessarily have to know the other language, but it helps them to layer instruction and build upon a foundation for them to get the content. It's not as important for the student to learn to speak English mm-hmm. as it is for them to be able to communicate in the language of social studies, in the language of science, in the language mm-hmm. of math. English, of course, is a factor, but there are other resources and um, situations involved as far as the ESL teachers, because I know everyone's concerned about testing, 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 testing. But when the English is the the subject, there are different things in place for them where they're not necessarily required to take those tests as early. Mm -hmm. But in the math classroom, or any, I say content, you know, my math is my love, but it's more about being able to transfer the information Mm -hmm. and assuming that our students come to us with a foundation of the subject that we're teaching and then transfer. So I would have my students do all their work and continue their thinking in, say, Spanish or French or German, and then slowly try to translate it to me. And I would use question stems and and sentence stems even, showing them the structure of a sentence in English so that they could translate it. But 
I would have them think in their native language and then try to give me the information back in mine. So in our recent <coughs> newsletter, you described a few of those strategies in detail to help teachers find a way to transfer some of that information yes. and not focus so much on the language, but focus more on that translation of information. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit more about what one of those strategies is? Yes. Well, everything that we try to promote in our classrooms is giving students authentic learning experiences. And it makes the information that they're going to be discussing and working with, the content that they're going to be engaging with, more interesting because it makes sense to them. They have a frame of reference. And so trying to use some contrived word problems, they just, they're irrelevant to the kids. Mm -hmm. And the, the kids, a lot of students get more stuck on those topics. Like, well, what is, what is that? You know, where is that? Instead of, oh, I know what that is. And immediately their mind makes a connection and they say, oh, okay, I know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So even if they don't understand the content yet, no lesson has begun, you have them, they call it the hook, where the student is going, okay, I know where she's at. They have a place to begin. You, you have that entry point. And so authentic learning experiences can be anything from cultural to regional. Like if it's rodeo time, here we are in the beginning of the year, if it's rodeo time, then you could change up some of your lesson introductions to include the rodeo, mm -hmm. you know, talk, oh, the rodeo's coming up. Who knows about the rodeo? And you start a conversation about that. Then you segue into whatever the lesson is. And you just change information in the lesson, add some pictures where it still keeps that theme going. You even might have them dress up. If you're in elementary school, you might have them dress up mm -hmm. in rodeo gear. But the authentic experience is then something that is not only where they have a frame of reference and that it moves kind of together, but then... You want to make sure that they can see the value in the information that they're learning mm -hmm. where they can have immediate application of it. Mm -hmm. So instead of, so let's say we're doing fractions because everyone loves fractions. When they're learning about fractions, however you've structured the lesson, when you talk about, you know, pieces of a pizza or pieces of candy or how do you break up a set of cookies, whatever you do at the end of that, before you let them out of the room, the relevance and the value in it is, okay, so tonight I want you to go home and find mm. three things that are an example of a fraction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ask your mom and dad or your older brother and sister to help you find three examples. You don't have to bring them in, but just write them down on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's valuable because they're, one, it's a school-home connection. Two, it's real, real, real-world application. You can't get more real than what's in my home. But it's a demonstration. It doesn't have to be 10 to 20 problems on a piece of paper mm -hmm. that you send home with a kid that don't have any connection to real life. But going to say, oh, I have seven eggs left out of a dozen. They can see it. They can touch it. They know what it means. Seven out of 12. It gives them a visual right there. And they can talk about, you know, how many more they would need. What if they had seven more eggs? You can take that information and use it to extend their learning. So you've mentioned visual, and in your article you also have one of the strategies that's labeled as visual literacy. Is that what you mean? Yes. Can you tell me more visual, about what that means? Visual literacy, something that we take for granted with children and students is that they're able to interpret everything that they're seeing just because they can see it. But knowing what it means is entirely different, especially in, like, let's say science. You could describe a cell to me all day long. 
but unless I see a visual and not just one on paper, but like a, nowadays in technology, you can, oh my gosh, science has so many great online tools that you can use to really demonstrate to children what things look like, but being able to interpret what they're seeing. So let's say they're looking at um, a cell and you've talked about what a normal cell looks like and an abnormal cell looks like. They need to be able to translate which parts or components create the abnormality. So if they don't ever see it, but in that seeing it, their their brains are categorizing the information. And so as they transfer knowledge from the verbal to the written, to the graphic. Mm -hmm. Graphic is just as important. So like in math, we have where you have to be able to do something numerically with numbers, symbolically, pictorially, Mm -hmm. tabular, and then be able to extend to, you know, a a broader range of things. So the visuals also come in um, the organization. So graphic organizers and folding organizers are very useful to help students organize. I know, and again, 20, 30 years ago, when I was sitting in um, middle and high school, we took notes. That's what we did. College ruled or wide ruled, we took notes and we mm-hmm. dictated and we wrote down every single thing the teacher took. As said to us, but nowadays, that's really just not, it. one, we don't have the same kind of time. Two, there's a lot more information that students are taking in. So giving them a graphic organizer, or sometimes it's called an advanced organizer, where Students are conditioned. If I give you a piece of paper that has, say, five blocks and they're labeled, they are conditioned to think, oh, I'm going to fill in every single one of those blocks. So they're already there with you. And if you skip something, like, whoa, 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 the paper says you're going to do this. <laughs> and so it's easier for them to follow the structure and you keep them with you. And so that is another type of visual where you're organizing the information in advance or interactive notebooks or just graphic organizers. Like um, when you talk about process in let's say social studies and telling the story of I don't know World War Two you they have these little visuals where you can take like a it looks like a film strip and you cut up the film strip but you place pictures that would tell the story of World War Two and an activity might be the students then have to put in the proper order or doing a word problem in math they have all the steps listed and they organize it it's a nice in between between lecture and practice its process and how do you see visual literacy in particular, but really any of the three strategies, particularly critical or important for English language learners and specifically? Specific to English language learners, I think it's really important for us to remember that students come to us with a wealth of knowledge. Whether they've been in formal educational settings or not, they have developed over however many years they have been alive before they've come to us. So our job is to help them organize that information before we can give them new information. So the authentic experiences help ground them. Like, I know what this is. This is tactile to me. I can touch it. I can feel it. I use it every day. So it helps them continue the process of using those skills. Mm-hmm. So that's a grounding strategy. And then you scaffold. Over time, you may not have to do as many. You can expand it to more global thinking. Mm -hmm. Then when you hit the visual literacy, visuals, they see them every day. We need our students to be able to interpret the data that they see around them on a daily basis. And so it's very important for them to be able to take that information and translate it into how it's going to be applied in the classroom. I also talked about substantive conversations. English learners have to have a chance every day to practice writing, reading, listening, and speaking. And we can give that, again, we scaffold where we maybe give them 
statement stems where they were showing them how to structure their responses and um, we're also showing them how to ask questions using the vocabulary and speaking of vocabulary that's the bonus that I included in the article is academic vocabulary is very important because in math, you can't do math without the vocabulary. You can't call a vertex the point. Well, there's several points. Which point are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And so it's really important for them to be able to master the vocabulary. But one thing that I really like to use for, with vocabulary is total physical response, which originally was to teach language. And math is a language. Every subject is a language of its own. But it connects a visual to a memory to the word, to sometimes a sound. Like when I used to say, um, greater than, it's one symbol that it seems like nobody can master. I'm not upset with elementary school teachers who talk about alligators and Pat Man, but when they get older, they need to know what the symbol really means. And so I would say, you know, when the song Raise the Roof comes on, I would say there's no song greater than Raise the Roof. And so I'd have my students put their hands in the air and pump, raise the roof, raise the roof. And then I would talk about the get low. That's that song, get low. You can't get, you know, how low can you go? And so we push down. And so they understood the difference between greater than and less than to the right and up. But it gives them a physical response, a physical memory, mm -hmm. and a song in their head. You might even play the song. But it really makes a connection for them and helps them get those words, give them meaning is mm -hmm. really what it does. Are these strategies particular to any specific grade level? Grade level. These are useful, again, possibly with accommodations, but these are things that can be used with every grade level, every content, even physical activity, you know, PE or language mm -hmm. learning, but they really help cement the information for the kids. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time, Paula, and make sure to check out the full article that's available on our website, idra.org. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.